And we can turn back to the chapter we read there from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. And we can read again verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I'd like us today, as we can see on the screen, to think about the topic, the spirit and the cross. Sometimes in life we may have an appointment that we want to keep. And depending on the nature of the appointment, we might want a friend to come with us. We may want that friend for lots of different reasons. We may want him to come because he knows everything about the situation that we're going to be in maybe even know far more about it than we ourselves. We always see a friend who comes with us would be sympathetic with us regarding the issue that is concerning us. Well, here in verse 14, Jesus has an appointment. And the appointment is the cross. And who is going to go with him there? I mean, who would we suggest should go with Jesus to the cross? How about Peter? Peter was quite sure that he would be good to help. He actually said, didn't he, even if you die, I'll die with you. Surely he would be the man to go to the cross with Jesus, a friend but we know that Peter wasn't able to do it. How about John, the apostle of love? Well, he did go to the cross. He didn't die there. We could say that John was a friend who went some of the distance. He, didn't, he couldn't go all the way. How about all the disciples together? There's sometimes there's comfort in numbers. But we know that they ran away. How about the women? Far more loyal than the men. Yet they all stood at a distance. 
So who would go with Jesus? That's the question, isn't it? I suppose we should ask ourselves, who is Jesus? We know the answer to that question, don't we? But do we really think about it? Who is Jesus? That he would need someone with him. Well, he's, as you can see from this verse, this is one of the verses that mentions the Trinity. Verse 14. You get the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Christ, the Spirit, and God. So he's one of the Trinity. And normally, when the Trinity is mentioned in other Bible passages as happy events. We can think of his baptism when Jesus got baptized and the Trinity appeared. So I didn't appear, but they were present. And the Father spoke and the Spirit descended in a dove, like a dove. And Jesus received blessings. It was a very happy occasion. Or we can think of the benediction that we shall probably say at the end of this service. And whatever else we say about the benediction, it's obvious from its contents that the Trinity are working together. The grace of Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit. But here, are they together? That the eternal Christ, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. The capabilities of Jesus are therefore immense, aren't they? It means God. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omniscient. There's nothing hidden from his divine mind. Not a thing. He's aware of the degree of intensity <coughs> in every incident that ever happens in his existence. And of course, his existence is eternal. So, why would the almighty, divine Son of God need a friend for this appointment? We're told something else about him in the verse, of course, but we're spoken about the, he's Christ. And the word Christ, as we know, points to the Messiah. Messiah first promised in the Garden of Eden after man fell. And the promise made about him there in the Garden of Eden would be 
that he would be a triumphant conqueror. That he would crush the head of the serpent. And that's just the first of the promises. There are numerous other promises about him that indicate his greatness as the Messiah. He is going to come into the world in a very unusual manner by a virgin birth. When he comes into the world, later on when he grows up, he's going to have the spirit without measure. He is going to be able to perform all kinds of miracles and wonders. He can calm the sea. He can almost, we could say, do anything he wants. And yet here he is, and he's found himself in a location where he needs divine help. And who's going to give him the help? Well, the answer is the Holy Spirit. We can ask, we can put it this way, who went to Calvary with Jesus? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. So I'd just like us to think briefly about that today. In the verse, there are three things. Jesus draws near to God. The second one is Jesus draws near to God with help. And the third one is he draws near to God to offer something. He draws near, the Spirit's there beside him, and the Spirit's there to help him. So he draws near to God. He approaches the Father. You and I, if we were asked to meet the king, well, it would be a kind of one-off event, wouldn't it? wouldn't expect that to happen too often. But Jesus, it was his constant privilege, we might say. Certainly his constant pleasure. And he had been doing it always. Even before he came into the world, this is what he did. He drew near to the Father. Before there was a universe which is, of course, very hard for us to have to understand. But what were the Father, the Son, and the Spirit doing before the universe was made? Well, they were with each other, indwelling each other, present to each other. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was face to face with God. And whatever we say about being face to face, it does mean approaching, doesn't it? Drawing near. That was his internal experience. That must have been a marvelous experience. I mean, would, 
Would we carry on doing something we didn't like? Of course we wouldn't. Would God carry on doing something like that? If it didn't bring him pleasure? Of course not. He got infinite pleasure from interacting with one another, with three persons of the Trinity. That was Jesus' constant experience before he was conceived and born. But even after he was conceived and born, as a human, he drew near to God. We're told that when he was 12 years old, aren't we? When his mother tried to correct him, which is an interesting situation. And his reply to her was, don't you know that I must be about my father's business? He constantly drew near to God. He prayed. It wasn't just when he prayed that he drew near to God. God was just there. The Father is with me, is what he said. Companions. It was a wonderful experience for a man to have, wasn't it? Access. Constantly. No barrier. Because Jesus had never sinned. And of course, as a man, he got he the Holy Spirit helped him to do all these things. Whether he was a boy, teenager, adult. Holy Spirit's there to help him, but we can understand that, can't we? It's almost as if heaven came down. What they had been doing in heaven was now being done on earth. Except that Jesus is now also a man, as well as being God. But here we are. The appointment's taking place at the cross. And how does Jesus approach the appointment? Well, we're told of three things he said. Well, we're told of seven things he said. But there's three things he said that refer directly to God. And we can almost say the first one he did, even though he was in a very uncomfortable position, having just been nailed to the cross. But his first reaction was just, well, how the pain was intense and beyond description. His response, we might say, was normal. It's what you would have always done. He just prayed for the people around him. Even if it so happened that the people around him were the ones who had crucified him. Father, 
Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What else would we expect Jesus to say? The loving, the man with the most love that there's ever been in the world. No circumstance could deprive him, or prevent him, I should say, from loving people. There in the cross, he showed it by his first words to his father. Even, we might say, finding an argument in their ignorance as a reason why they should be forgiven. But then, a few hours later, we're coming to the moment that cannot be explained. We sang it. What did we think when we sang it? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he in isolation? Was there someone there to help him? Why did he think of that psalm? But anyway, as a crucified man, he's in a different place than when he made the first prayer, wasn't he? Father, forgive them. Father, where are you? And the third one, of course, at the end, the seventh saying on the cross, after he had cried with a loud voice, it is finished, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Who made him think of Psalm 31? Who made him think of Psalm 22? Who made him think of Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 says when he suffers, he'll make intercession for the transgressors. There's him praying for the soldier. Who brought Isaiah 53 to his mind? In his cry of, cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who led him to think that Psalm 22 was the appropriate words to say? And when he came to the end of his earthly journey and he's about to leave the world, who brought to his mind the words of Psalm 31? The friend that went with him to the cross. He approached the father We might say the way he approached everything else. 
What did God's word say? Why was the spirit needed? Well, he's crucified. But he's not like the ones beside him who have been crucified. They had a burden, certainly. Pain, who can describe it? Crucifixion was designed that every nerve in your body would be an agony for the few short hours you were yet to live. But that wasn't the weight that Jesus was carrying, was it? He's there to perform a function. He's got to carry the unbearable weight of our sins out of the sight of the omniscient God. Where is that place where God will not be able to see them? Who knows how to get there? As we think of Jesus carrying that weight, you know, Atlas holds up the earth. Well, mythology. But we could put it this way the weight of the world would be less than the weight of a feather compared to the weight that Jesus carried. Who helped him carry the awful weight? Now, there's two possibilities we could say. He's there as a man, just like you and I, except he's sinless. He's also more than a man. He's a divine God. One possibility we could say is, well, his divine nature helped him carry the unbearable weight. Some people do suggest that. But I don't think it's what this verse says. This verse tells us the Holy Spirit enabled him to do it. How did the Holy Spirit enable him to do it? Coming towards Jesus as a torrents of almighty wrath. And they're not going to go an inch past him. But they're going to flow towards him with all the energy of which God is capable. And they're going to come in infinite amounts. How is the Spirit going to help them? I mean, normally, if we see torrents coming towards us, we would run away. 
What's Jesus going to do when the almighty torrents come rushing towards him? Faster than the speed of light. Well, the Holy Spirit, he has to give him something. What does he give him? Determination. I have a baptism with which I must be baptized. And how am I straightened until it be accomplished? In Gethsemane, after the struggle, and of course he wouldn't be a real man if he didn't have a struggle, but after his struggle in Gethsemane, Some few words, but what words? Not my will, but yours be done. Determination. And if we want to try and divide all the torrents up into little drops, after each one came, the determination is stronger. Because the Holy Spirit is working through his faculties. What else is he going to work through but his faculties? His determination to keep on going. And even when he cries, why have you forsaken me? It's not the cry of a quitter, is it? It's the cry of someone who's determined to keep on going. But the Holy Spirit did more. He did something within Jesus in connection with us. When he was there to pay the penalty for our sins, did he regret being there? Did he say, I wish I hadn't decided to do this. There are circumstances that we find ourselves in that eventually the pressure is so hot that we give up. But Jesus, he's a man. So all the fruit of the Spirit in his life is capable of growth. And that includes the cross. And on the cross, although we find it hard to understand, his love for his people increased. The ardor of his love was strongest at Calvary. It's a trite question, but if we could have asked him, How much do you love your people? All you'd have to say in reply is, just look. You can see how much I love them. And every 
drop of the torrent that flooded his soul only increased the intensity of his love. The Spirit did that. Isn't it amazing? The same Spirit that led him to love throughout his earthly life, who produced in his holy character the beauty of the Holy of the fruit of the Spirit, there at the cross, in perfect balance, having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the end. That doesn't mean end in the sense of time. He loved them to the fullest. And he did that by the Spirit. What else would the Spirit have done for him? Well, why did he endure the cross? The writer of Hebrews tells us the answer to that question. It was for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Who brought heaven to his mind when he spoke to the penitent criminal? When that hopeless man said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What brought to Jesus' mind the man there suffering so intensely? Today you'll be with me in paradise. The Holy Spirit reminded him of what lay ahead. And he endured the cross. So that's why the Spirit was needed. Needed to give him determination needed to strengthen his affections, needed to remind him of the prospect of great joy. The Spirit was active through all these measureless moments and these hours on the cross. And what was the Spirit helping him to do? as he admitted all these acts of benefit on his behalf. And the writer tells us, he offered himself without spot to God. I mean, offering is an act of worship, isn't it? It's only a worshiper who offers a sacrifice. And when Jesus went to Calvary, he went to worship. Very unusual expression of worship. Only ever happened once. 
And it's good that it only ever happens once. But because he did it, we can worship. He offered himself without spot to God. Jesus took his humanity and offered it there, spotless. And although he was carrying the weight of sin, in which there are trillions and trillions of sins, there's no spot on him. And although he's carrying them to the unidentified country where not even divine omniscience will find them again. Although he carries them all, your little sins, my little sins, your big sins, my big sins, the sins you've forgotten about, the sins I've forgotten about, the sins you didn't bother to confess, the sins I haven't bothered to confess. Jesus bore them all. And they left no mark on him. He asked people on one occasion, which of you convinces me of sin? Saint them, identify one sin in me. That's what Jesus said about himself, wasn't it? And even on the cross where all these human sins were gathered in a strange collection. And he carried them himself. He offered himself in an act of incredible worship, expressing his dedication and his devotion. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, through the eternal Spirit. And we may wonder why that's the adjective is there. Why not say the Holy Spirit? Why is it the eternal spirit? Because the transaction that's occurring is eternal. He offered a spotless life to God to pay the penalty and down on him for these hours when he hung there at the cross on his holy soul as he was upheld by the Holy Spirit divine wrath descended in all its unexplainable weight and there he is with his friend keeping the appointment and never once did he say in these dark hours I wish it hadn't been in my diary. There he is. And as we just come to a close, just what are the benefits that come to us?
as we are sitting here, what are the benefits that come to us? Well, we may wonder what's the point of referring to the ashes of a heifer. What was that um, sacrifice connected with? Well, it's connected to the problem that our sins bring death. Everything we touch, in a spiritual sense, brings death. No life. And our conscience, it's been defiled. Spiritual death marks everything about us. Or at least it used to. Because when we come to believe in Jesus, the first time we do it, our conscience no longer says to us, You've got dead works. Because that same Holy Spirit that went with him into the darkness of the cross, he leads us to confess our sins. And because our sins have been cleansed, not just forgiven, but because they've been cleansed, we can go in his presence with a conscience that's clean. And we no longer have dead works. They're not perfect works in this life. But the blood of Jesus makes us accepted in God's sight. And it's not just our persons that are accepted. But our works are accepted. We can serve the living God. Because the Holy Spirit went with Jesus to Calvary. We can serve the living God. In a sense, serving the living God is not an option. According to this verse, serving the living God is our practice. It's not that we allot some time of each day to serving God. Because Jesus went to Calvary. Because he consecrated himself to pay the penalty for our sins. And because he has paid it, because he endured to pay it, we now can constantly although imperfectly, serve the living God. In fact, we shouldn't be doing anything else. Our lives should be consecrated to him, whatever we're doing. And because Jesus approached God in the way he did, we can approach God in the way we should. When Jesus approached God, 
on this occasion at the cross. Wrath met him. When we approach God, it's not wrath that meets us. It's love. Almighty love. The same one that helped Jesus endure the wrath. The Holy Spirit helps us experience the love. The love that just keeps on flowing eternally. The love of God as Paul describes believers when he's writing in Romans, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. As we think about the cross, the question is not how much do you know? The question is how much do you love? We don't come to the cross as scientists to analyze it because we can't. Who can tell us what one drop of divine wrath is like since we've never tasted it? Who can tell us what the Savior's dedication was like We have never seen it. But we can say whether or not our love is warm, is hot, is constant. And why shouldn't it be since Jesus went to the cross? So, it would be good for us, wouldn't it, every time we got an appointment, to think of Jesus' appointment, the one he kept, and kept going during it. Most of our appointments are short-lived, and some of them, we can't even remember them now. But Jesus' appointment, although from a human point of view is a few hours, there's a certain sense in which the whole of eternity was there because he paid the price as the same as eternal punishment. And he has never forgotten that. He doesn't expect us to forget it either just to love him. That's all he asks for. As he said to the Apostle John, or to Peter, sorry, as recorded by John, Simon, do you love me? And that's what he says to us. Shall we pray?